Hey, baseball fans. I'm Matt Russell, and this is Three Strikes, You're Out, the Baseball History Podcast. We have a big one this week, a really big one. It is the famed and much-loved Washington Senator Slugger, Frank Howard. This mountain of a man was known for his tape measure home runs, including some documented 500-footers. He was an all-star, a home run champion, and one of the most feared sluggers during the late 1960s, all while remaining a truly nice guy. So, let's get to it. Batter up! Frank Oliver Howard, who had several nicknames, including Hondo, the Washington Monument, and my personal favorite, the Capitol Punisher, is a former all-star outfielder, coach, and manager in Major League Baseball, who played most of his career for the Los Angeles Dodgers and Washington Senators franchises. He was one of the most physically intimidating players in the sport at 6 feet 8 inches and weighing anywhere between 250 and 290 pounds. That makes him bigger than his modern-day counterpart, Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees. Howard was known for his fearsome line drives that endangered both infielders and base runners alike, and for his long home runs that tended to come in bunches. Among his many accomplishments, he was the 1960 National League Rookie of the Year. He was a four-time All-Star. He was a two-time American League home run leader. He was a World Series champion with the Dodgers in 1963, and... He still has the record for hitting the most home runs in one week, hitting an amazing 10 home runs in 20 at-bats. Woo! Frank Howard was born on August 8, 1936, in Columbus, Ohio, to John and Irma Howard. John was a large man at 6'4 and over 200 pounds, and a machinist for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. His mother, Irma, was a homemaker. Frank was the third of six children who lived with their parents in a modest frame house. There was always lots of food on the table, Howard remembered, but if we kids wanted money, we had to earn it. Frank shined shoes, caddied, and did the hard manual labor appropriate to his size. When I was 14, he recalled, I worked a hundred-pound jackhammer in the streets for the city of Columbus, got paid maybe a dollar and a half an hour, and was glad to get it. By the end of his sophomore year at Columbus South High School, he had grown to six foot five, weighing 195 pounds. Frank's dad had played semi-pro baseball around Columbus, and he encouraged his son's interest in the game. Although Frank excelled at playing basketball, he preferred baseball. He was widely recruited for college basketball and received offers from many colleges, but he decided to stay at home and play at Ohio State. Frank was anxious to get an education, recalled Floyd Stahl, his basketball coach at OSU, but he had almost no money. We didn't have the grants and sports scholarships that we have today. I told Frank I thought we could find jobs for him. Howard did get some assistance from the school, but also worked around campus for four years. When Stahl got him a job working on a cement crew, the foreman told him, quote, Frank does twice as much work as any laborer I've had, unquote. Stahl was soon concerned that Howard would work too hard and overtrain. Howard became a basketball star for the Buckeyes, earning All-American honors as a junior, and setting a Madison Square Garden record in a holiday tournament with 32 rebounds in a game, and 75 for the three games. The next year, Howard was drafted by the Philadelphia Warriors of the NBA. 
He also played baseball for Ohio State, hitting more than 302 seasons and displaying occasional glimpses of the power he would become famous for. The Brooklyn Dodgers first scouted him in 1956, and the next year, when Howard was a junior, Cliff Alexander filed this scouting report. Quote, Good arm. Fielding. Below average. Hitting. Below average. Good potential. Running speed. Slightly below average. Major league power. Definite follow. Unquote. What Alexander saw was an unfinished product with a lot of potential. Howard played that summer of 1957 for Rapid City in the Basin League, a circuit that drew a lot of attention from big league scouts. He almost signed that summer, but had promised Coach Stahl he would return to Columbus for his final year of basketball. After his basketball season ended, he let Major League scouts know that he was ready to sign. He had a lot of offers, but the Dodgers, now in Los Angeles, had been talking to him for a couple of years and he never seriously considered anyone else. Alexander remembers Howard calling him up to tell him that Paul Richards, who was running the Baltimore Orioles at the time, had offered a $120,000 bonus. Howard asked Alexander for $108,000, $100,000 for himself, and $8,000 to be put toward a new house for his parents. Alexander agreed, and Howard was on his way. He left Ohio State one semester short of a degree in physical education. The Dodgers sent their big recruit to their Green Bay team in the Class B 3I League, where he played for the former Brooklyn star outfielder Pete Reiser. This first stop proved no difficulty at all, as Howard hit 333 and led the league with 37 home runs and 119 RBIs. At the end of the year, he was named the league's most valuable player. One evening at a local pizza parlor, he met Carol Johansky, a secretary for the Green Bay Gazette. Six months later, they married, and Howard soon bought a house in Green Bay and settled there. In September, the 22-year-old was brought up to the Dodgers to finish the season. He made his debut on September 10, 1958, at Philadelphia's Connie Mack Stadium. Batting against Robin Roberts, he finished 2-for-4, including a mammoth two-run home run in his second big league at bat. The drive hit a billboard on top of the left-field roof, causing left-fielder Harry Anderson to say he was afraid the billboard was going to fall over onto his head. On September 16th, he came to bat in Cincinnati with teammate Duke Snyder on third base. Up in the radio booth, Dodgers announcer Vin Scully commented that Snyder was standing way off the foul line due to Howard's habit for pulling line drives down the line. Just as Scully said this, Howard hit a vicious foul liner that hit Snyder in the head, knocking him briefly unconscious and ending the Duke's season. Howard finished his brief trial hitting 241 in 29 at-bats. In 1959, the Dodgers sent Howard to Victoria of the Texas League, which also proved to be no challenge. Through 63 games, he looked to be on his way to a triple crown, with 27 home runs, 79 RBIs, and a 371 average. Dodgers general manager Buzzy Bavese paid the club a visit, watched Howard hit a towering 520-foot homer to win a game, and brought him back to Los Angeles. Howard only stayed a week, going just 2-for-19 before getting sent to AAA Spokane in the Pacific Coast League. He hit 317 with 16 more home runs with Spokane in the second half, then returned to the Dodgers in mid-September. 
The club was in the middle of a pennant race, so Howard only got two at-bats, including a pinch-hit home run off the Cardinals' Lindy McDaniel on the 23rd. The Dodgers ultimately won the pennant and the World Series. After the season, the Sporting News named Howard their Minor League Player of the Year. By the spring of 1960, with 50 big league at-bats to his credit, Howard's size, strength, and power had already led to more than his share of headlines. Sports writers also begin touting him as the next Babe Ruth. Tales of 500-foot minor league home runs and his line drives that threatened both base runners and infielders were told repeatedly. In a day when many major leaguers were not even six feet tall, and when the biggest stars in the National League, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, and Frank Robinson, were no more than 180 pounds, Howard had reached six foot eight and was a full 250 pounds. In later years, he would occasionally be heavier, reportedly between 275 and 290 pounds. Jim Gilliam, Howard's five foot ten teammate, spoke for many when he said, quote, "A man that big should hit 50 home runs every year, and I mean every year." Unquote. He was still a work in progress in the outfield and first base. He had a fine arm, but was slow to get moving, and he swung at way too many bad pitches. As one writer noted. Quote, Huge Frank has little comprehension of his own mammoth strike zone and but slight control over his all-or-nothing uppercut swing. Until he develops a modicum of finesse, Los Angeles will string along with its present quota of mere mortals. Unquote. Even with all the attention Howard was getting, he still faced the task of landing a spot on a world championship team. He did fairly well in spring training in 1960, hitting 278 with two home runs but had a minor run-in with manager Walter Alston about his lack of playing time and ended up back in Spokane to start the year. In 26 games there, he hit 371 and returned to the Dodgers in May, this time to stay. He soon became the regular right fielder and, despite a late-season slump, ended up hitting 268 with 23 home runs and 77 RBIs. After the season, he was named the National League Rookie of the Year. His 1961 season began slowly because of a chip bone in his thumb. Alston had intended to move him to first base, but the injury and recovery kept Howard out of the lineup early, and he ended up mainly platooning in right field, starting just 72 times. He actually hit better than his rookie year, 296 with 15 home runs and just 267 at-bats, but grew increasingly frustrated when he could not stay in the lineup. After the 1961 season, the Dodgers lost both of their first basemen, Gil Hodges and Norm Larker, in the expansion draft, causing them to move Ron Fairley to first and open up more playing time for Howard. Although he still only started 123 games, he hit 296 with 31 home runs, 7th in the league, and was 5th in the league with 119 RBIs and a 560 slugging percentage. He also won the National League Player of the Month award in July with a 381 average, 12 home runs, and an incredible 41 RBIs, demonstrating his tendency to get on hot streaks. But he was still an undisciplined hitter, with 108 strikeouts and just 39 walks. As an outfielder, Howard had a fine season and was credited with 19 outfield assists. For comparison, the league leader, Johnny Callison, started 147 games and had just five more. The 1962 Dodgers were a great offensive team, 
finishing second in the league in runs while playing in the pitcher-friendly Dodger Stadium and won 102 games. But they ended the season losing to the Giants in a best-of-three playoff series to decide the pennant. Howard would later finish ninth in the MVP voting. A big change for Howard came about in early 1963. Sports Illustrated wrote, quote, For years, he has tried to hit 90-mile-per-hour pitches with 20-40 vision in his good eye and 20-60 in his left. He was second in the league in strikeouts last year, and his relations with flyballs were no better, particularly those appearing out of the L.A. smog. Last week, Howard put on glasses and immediately whacked three home runs in four games, unquote. Howard stayed hot for a while, hitting 384 in April, but a bad slump hitting just 167 in May and 194 in June cost him his full-time job. He alternated the rest of the season with Wally Moon in right field. He still managed 28 home runs, by far the most on the team, and a 273 batting average and 417 at-bats. But glasses or no, he set an all-time Dodgers record with 116 strikeouts at the plate. He wore glasses for the rest of his career. Thanks mainly to their great pitching staff, the 1963 Dodgers returned to the World Series against the New York Yankees, who had won the series the previous two seasons. In the first game, facing Whitey Ford, he crushed a fastball 460 feet to deep left center field for the longest double in the 41-year history of Yankee Stadium, reaching the fabled monuments that were on the playing field in that era. The Dodgers won the next two games, and they were poised to sweep the Yankees. In the fifth inning of Game 4 of the World Series in Dodger Stadium, with no men on the bases, Howard faced Ford again. Hondo responded by hitting a slow curve 450 feet into the upper deck in deep left field. This broke a scoreless tie, helping the Dodgers to a 2-1 win and a sweep of the New York Yankees. Howard finished a memorable 3-for-10 and was now a World Series hero. But after the 1963 season, Howard was 27 years old and people no longer believed he was the next Babe Ruth. In his four years, he had been on the field about two-thirds of the time for the Dodgers and had hit 282 and averaged 24 home runs per year. While others had called him the new Ruth and then came down on him when he was less than that, Howard had a more measured view. He said, quote, I think I am a realistic guy. I have the God-given talents of strength and leverage. I realize that I can never be a great ball player because a great ball player must be able to do five things well run, field, throw, hit, and hit with power. I am mediocre in four of those, but I can hit with power. I have a chance to be a good ball player. I work on my fielding all the time, but in the last two years I feel that I have gotten worse as a fielder. My greatest fear was being on the bases, and I still worry about it. I'm afraid to get picked off. I'm afraid to make a mistake on the bases, and I have made them again and again, but here I feel myself getting better. Unquote. His throwing arm, once a strength, had been hurt when he shoved himself into a locker in a fit of anger. Nevertheless, he wanted to know where he stood, and he went to see General Manager Bavese. Howard said, quote, I didn't go in and give it that old nonsense about play me or trade me, because the Dodgers have some mighty fine players. I told Mr. Bavese that these were my peak years as an athlete, and that an athlete doesn't get two or three sets of peak years. I wanted to play regularly, 
and Mr. Bavese said I would get that chance this year. Manager Alston said it too. Now it's up to me, unquote. Howard started the first 49 games of the 1964 season, but hit just 215 despite 14 home runs. This was second in the league to Willie Mays. A high point came on June 4th as his three-run home run in the seventh inning provided all the scoring in Sandy Koufax's third no-hitter, a 3-0 defeat of the Philadelphia Phillies. After that, manager Walter Alston began sitting Howard occasionally against right-handed pitchers, and he ended up with 433 at-bats, 24 home runs, and a 226 average. Alston and Bavese had both come to believe that they could not win in Dodger Stadium with power. They needed pitching, defense, and speed. When Howard asked to be traded after the season, the Dodgers obliged. On December 4th, they traded Howard, third baseman Ken McMullen, and pitchers Phil Ortega and Pete Reichert to the Washington Senators for pitcher Claude Osteen, infielder John Kennedy, and $100,000. Without Howard, and aided by Osteen and the starting rotation, the Dodgers went on to win the 1965 World Series without a single player who hit more than 12 home runs. Recalled Howard, quote, Disappointed in the trade? Oh no, I knew it was time. I was at the stage of my life where I had to find out if I could play every day, unquote. The Washington Senators were an expansion team with four years under their belt. They had lost at least 100 games every year and had reached no higher than ninth place. No matter. Howard was excited about going where he was wanted, and excited to play for Gil Hodges, his teammate from a few years earlier. Howard remained his own toughest critic, especially where his defense was concerned. I'm not a complete player, Howard admitted. I can't throw like a complete player should, and I don't always hit the ball like I should. I do try, though, replied Gil Hodges. Frank's being paid to hit. In 1965, Howard battled injuries all year, but played 149 games and hit 289 with 21 home runs and 84 RBIs, all team-leading figures. For the first time, he played mainly left field rather than right. The next season, his statistics were fairly similar. 278, 18 home runs, 71 RBIs, and 146 games. In judging his record today, it is important to remember just how low run scoring was in the 1960s, especially in the American League. Although Howard was not a star, his OPS of 790 compared favorably to the American League's overall average of 670. And he continued to make news and add to his legend with his long home runs, such as one he hit against the White Sox in D.C. Stadium in April. His teammate Fred Valentine recalled, quote, Tommy John threw him something and he hit a line drive back at him. John fell off the mound trying to get out of the way of the ball. Center fielder Tommy Agee started in like he was going to catch a line drive. It was like a two-iron, and it ended up in the upper deck in center field. They painted another seat, unquote. The Senators had begun painting seats in the upper deck to represent some of Howard's long home runs. Here are a few more examples of his legendary power. Howard is one of four players, along with Harmon Killebrew, Cecil Fielder, and Mark McGuire, to clear the left field roof at Tiger Stadium. He also hit a foul ball completely out of Yankee Stadium that Yankee outfielder Bobby Mercer later claimed was fair. His most memorable home run at RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. was on April 25, 1970, when he hit a 500-foot homer into the upper bleachers in left center field. 
The seat which it hit was painted white against the conforming gold to commemorate the event. In a game at Fenway Park, he hit a line drive that struck the center field wall 390 feet from home plate and bounced back into center fielder Reggie Smith's glove before Howard had even reached first base. During his National League days, Howard also smashed a ball an estimated 560 feet at Pittsburgh's Forbes Field. Wow! I wish we had some video footage of these shots. I've looked out on YouTube and there is actually very little of his actual hitting. That's a shame. Before the 1967 season, Hodges worked with Howard to retool his swing. He felt that Frank's level swing was producing hard ground balls and asked Frank to try a slight uppercut and to stand closer to the plate so he could pull the ball more. The results were obvious, as Howard had 24 home runs by midseason in 1967 and ended with 36, third in the league, and a .256 average. He also led the league with 155 strikeouts and walked only 60 times, but his OPS of 849 was still eighth in the American League. It was his best season to date. In 1968, Hodges moved to New York to manage the Mets and was replaced by Jim Lemon, a former outfielder for the old Washington Senators who had been an all-or-nothing slugger like Howard, hitting as many as 30 home runs and leading the American League in strikeouts three times. This year, 1968, is historically recognized as the year of the pitcher, as the American League hit just 230 and had shutouts in 20% of its games. Bucking this trend, Howard took a step forward and became the hitter people had predicted he would become a decade earlier. He hit 338 in April, but his best stretch came in early May when he blasted 10 home runs and collected 17 RBIs in a span of six games. During this amazing week, he set records for home runs in four games, seven, five games, eight, and six games, ten. This record of ten home runs in one week still stands to this day. He would go on to hit 13 homers in 16 games, a mark that still stands, matched only by Albert Bell in 1995. Detroit pitcher Joe Sparma, who gave up the eighth home run in this streak, said, quote, He always was good for 30 home runs anyway, but this year he's clobbering my best pitches. I think he'll hit 70, unquote. No, contradicted teammate Jim Northrup, he'll hit 75. As late as June 9th, Howard held league leads in home runs, 22, runs batted in, 47, and batting average, 342. As the American League had had triple crown winners in each of the last two seasons, Frank Robinson and Carl Yastrzemski, Howard's statistics were getting quite a bit of attention. As usual, the slugger himself was less impressed than the media. He commented, quote, All I'm trying to do is get three good cuts each time up. I haven't changed my swing, and I don't kid myself. I'm a streak hitter, and I'm hot, unquote. For the season, Howard settled down to hit 274, which was still 10th in the American League. He led the league with 44 home runs, 330 total bases, and a 552 slugging percentage, huge numbers for 1968, and finished second to Ken Harrelson with 106 RBIs. He made his first of four consecutive All-Star teams, starting in right field and batting fourth, going 0-2 in the American League's 1-0 loss in the Astrodome. In August, he turned 32, and people were writing like he had finally figured out how to hit. For the first time in his career, he also played quite a bit of first base, starting 51 times there. Howard recalled, quote, 
Jim Lemon did a marvelous job with me. He just took it a little further than Gil took it in 67. He moved me a little closer to the plate, spread me out a little bit more, cut down on the overstride, and as a result, I was starting to get a little more selective at the plate and probably had my first really good year in the big leagues." Unquote. Howard had picked up the nickname Hondo early in his career, and it endured. Once he joined the Senators, and especially once he became a star, he picked up two more nicknames, the Washington Monument and the Capitol Punisher. The names played to his strength and formidable presence in the batter's box, but both nicknames belied his gentle nature. He was nice to everyone but pitchers. After the Senators' 10th place finish, new owner Bob Short took over in January 1969 and decided to replace Lemon after his single season. To replace Lemon, Short lured Ted Williams out of his eight-year retirement, surprising everyone around the game. For Howard, this would be another turning point, perhaps the most important one. Williams believed he knew how to make Howard a better hitter. Howard recalled, quote, He called me into his office one day in the spring of 69. He said, Bush, come on in here. I'd only been in camp a couple of days, and I'm thinking, gee, I'm not in his doghouse already, am I? Unquote. Can you tell me how a guy who hit 44 home runs only got 48 walks? Asked Williams. After Howard offered some explanation, his manager got to the point. Well, let me ask you, can you take a strike? I'm talking about if it's a tough fastball in a tough zone, first pitch. Or if it's a breaking ball, you're sitting on a fastball. Can you take a strike? You know, try to get yourself a little better count to hit in? Howard said he could. Well, try it for me, William said. That year, Howard increased his walk total from 54 to 102, while his strikeouts fell from 141 to 96. He took advantage of more hitters' counts and ended up hitting 296 with 48 home runs and 111 RBIs. He led the league with 330 total bases and finished among the leaders in on-base percentage of 402 and slugging percentage of 574. He also hit a home run off Steve Carlton in the All-Star Game, held at his home park of RFK Stadium. I did it without even trying to walk, said Howard. I was trying to hit. If it was my pitch, but if it was something other than I was looking for, I took it. I was laying off some bad pitches, getting more counts in my favor, and all because of Ted Williams. He's one in a million. A marvelous, marvelous man. One wonders what kind of career Howard might have had if he had learned to do this ten years earlier. People have been trying to get him to lay off bad pitches his entire career. Williams, with a very simple piece of advice, succeeded. Williams was impressed. Quote, he still hit more home runs, some of them out of sight. I mean, he crushed the ball. I think without question the biggest, strongest guy who ever played this game. Unquote. That is some compliment coming from one of the all-time greats. Williams had quite an influence on the rest of the team as well, as they finished in third place in the new six-team American League East with an 86 and 76 record. Williams was named the American League's Manager of the Year. The next year, 1970, the team fell back to 70 wins and last place, losing their final 14 of the year. But Howard kept hitting. Playing 161 games in left field and first base, he hit 283 and led the American League in home runs, 44, RBIs, 126, and walks, 132. 
29 of his walks were intentional, as pitchers had begun to realize that they could no longer get him to chase bad pitches with runners on base. Indians manager Alvin Dark walked him intentionally 12 times in 18 games. His star pitcher, Sam McDowell, was particularly afraid of Howard, who hit 368 with 5 home runs and 68 at-bats off McDowell in his career. It might have been worse. McDowell walked Howard 25 times, including 9 times intentionally. Twice in 1970, Dark moved McDowell to another position with Howard due up, then moved him back to the mound when the coast was clear. Although Howard had just had his best three seasons, he was now 34 years old. In spring training the next season, 1971, he showed up in camp weighing 297 pounds, but he worked hard to remove the weight. Even so, his performance dropped some, hitting 279 with 26 home runs, but his 83 walks helped him remain one of the league's most valuable offensive forces. However, the big story in Washington that season was the protracted public effort to find a local buyer for the team. When this failed, owner Bob Short received permission from the American League to move the Senators to Arlington, Texas, where they would become the Texas Rangers. In the Senators' last game on September 30, 1971, Howard hit the final home run by a Washington Senator, though the game was ultimately forfeited to the Yankees when the angry fans stormed the field in the ninth inning. After Howard hit the home run, he received a standing ovation and waved to the crowd from the dugout steps with tears in his eyes. Major League Baseball did not return to Washington for 34 years. Howard had become one of the higher paid players in the game, reaching $125,000 a season by 1970 and staying there for a few years. In early 1972, prior to reporting to the brand new Texas Rangers, he held out for a small raise, but likely settled for maintaining his $120,000 salary. After a brief player strike that spring, on April 21, 1972, Howard appropriately hit a home run in his first home at bat for the Rangers, the first hit in Arlington Stadium, a long drive to dead center. A guy just does the best he can, said Howard. It's nice to think that these people's first memory of Major League Baseball might be my home run, but I really hope that their memory is the win. Unfortunately, Howard's days of stardom were behind him. He hit just 244 with nine home runs in 95 games before being sold to the Detroit Tigers on August 31st. The Tigers were in a fight for the American League East title and acquired Howard to platoon at first base with Norm Cash. Howard hit 242 for the month, but had one big day, a 3-for-4 performance against the Orioles on September 21st that included a home run off Dave McNally. As the Tigers won the division by a half game, Howard's contributions were important. Because he did not report to the Tigers until September 1st, he was ineligible to play in the American League Championship Series against Oakland, which defeated Detroit in an agonizingly close five-game series. The next season marked the start of the designated hitter rule in the American League, a change tailor-made for the 36-year-old Howard. He played 85 games for the Tigers, only three times in the field, and hit 12 home runs and batted 256. In October, he was released from the Tigers, ending his major league career. He signed for 1974 to play with the Taiheo Lions of Japan's Pacific League, but he hurt his back in his very first at-bat taking a huge cut at the ball and never played again. Howard's playing career was over at age 37. 
With his popularity, it is not surprising that Howard enjoyed an extensive post-playing career in the game. He managed the Spokane Indians in 1976, but returned to the major leagues as a coach with the Milwaukee Brewers the next year and remained in the majors for most of the next 20 years. He had two brief trials as a manager. He led the San Diego Padres in the strike-marred 1981 season, but was let go after the team finished last in both halves of the split season. Two years later, he took over the New York Mets when George Bamberger was fired 46 games into the 1983 season, but Howard was not offered the job after the Mets finished last. Howard was well-respected as a coach, but his employer seemed to feel that he was too nice a guy to be a successful manager. Besides the Brewers and the Mets, he also served as coach with the Seattle Mariners, the New York Yankees, and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. After living in Green Bay for many years, Howard resettled in Northern Virginia in the early 1990s, where his years of big league stardom in Washington made him a popular and revered figure. When the major leagues returned to Washington with the Nationals in 2005, Howard became the most visible link to the previous major league teams that had played there. Especially in the Nationals' years at RFK Stadium, Howard's old park, fans got a visible reminder of his power any time they looked at the painted seats, which were still visible in the upper deck. In 2008, the Nationals began playing in the brand new Nationals Park, and the next year unveiled three statues in their centerfield plaza, depicting Walter Johnson, who pitched for the first 20th century version of the Washington Senators, Josh Gibson, who started the Negro Leagues for the Homestead Grays, and Frank Howard, representing the expansion Senators. When the Nationals reached the postseason in 2012, Howard threw out the ceremonial first pitch of the division series before Game 4. On a personal note, I remember seeing Frank Howard in at least a couple of games against the A's around 1969 to 1970. The thing I most remember is how huge he was. My family often sat in the left field bleachers as we loved watching Joe Rudy play. Well, when Frank Howard ran out to left field, it seemed that the ground rumbled he was so big. He made other players look like boys. Although I was not lucky enough to see him hit a home run, I remember him hitting some tremendous foul balls, so his power was very evident. My good buddy Steve Kish, also an old-time A's fan, has a fantastic memory of Frank Howard from a game at the Oakland Coliseum, probably from around 1969 to 1971. He was also a bleacher guy and was getting a hot dog at the concession stand on the concourse above the bleachers in right center field. In those days, way before Mount Davis was added to the Coliseum closing off the outfield and ruining the stadium in my opinion, the stadium had a large section of ice plant that started above a 10-foot concrete wall that ran around the stadium concourse in the outfield. This section of ice plant ran at least 20 feet up to the stadium edge, with a final chain-link fence closing off the stadium. The concourse walkway itself had to be at least 20 to 30 feet wide, as this was the main path around the stadium. Well, back to the story. My buddy Steve heard a huge crack of the bat, and the crowd roared. He looked around to see a mammoth home run shot that landed two-thirds of the way up the ice plant in deep, deep left center field. It was the longest home run he said he had ever witnessed in person. Just to make it clear what kind of distance we're talking about, this Frank Howard home run completely cleared the bleachers. The concourse walkway, which was 20 or 30 feet wide at least, the 10-foot concourse wall, and hit two-thirds of the way up the ice plant, maybe another 12 to 15 feet. 
I know I never saw a ball hit anywhere near that far at the Coliseum. Not Yaz, Harmon Killebrew, or even Reggie Jackson. Man, amazing story. That ball had to be over 500 feet. I've posted a picture on my website of the Oakland Coliseum from the 1970s with a red X marked in the area where Frank Howard's ball landed. Just type in 3strikesyearout.com. That's 3strikesyearout.com and search for Frank Howard. Long after he had retired, Howard was often asked to look back on his career, especially the years prior to his stardom, and he always did so objectively. Quote, to be totally honest, had I made some adjustments hitting-wise earlier in my career, instead of just going up there swinging at everything, I would have had better years. When people look back on their careers, they say they wouldn't change a thing. I would have. I would have made the adjustments. I would have given myself the chance to put up big numbers. Unquote. In the end, though, Frank Howard had a memorable career that included 382 home runs, two home run titles, an RBI title, a World Series home run and championship, four All-Star games, and a Rookie of the Year honor. His career home runs were the eighth most by a right-handed hitter when he retired. His 1969 totals of 48 homers and 340 total bases in a Washington uniform are a record for any of that city's several franchises. His record of 237 home runs in Washington was only just beaten by Ryan Zimmerman in July of 2017. He remains one of the most admired ball players in Washington, D.C. to this day, and for a few years, a big league pitcher would rather have faced just about anyone on the planet other than Frank Howard, the Capital Punisher. Next time, Three Strikes You're Out will feature one of the most fearsome pitchers ever, the great Bob Gibson. It should be fun. Just don't dig in at the plate. See you in the bleachers. Special mentions go out to the following. I would like to thank YouTuber Mr. Runner Holly, look him up, for his permission to use his cover of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Awesome, man. I love it. Also, I have to mention the great internet baseball history resource, Saber.org. That's S-A-B-R dot O-R-G. Or Society for American Baseball Research. I use this extensively for my shows and really love their well-written and researched articles. I recommend you take a look. You won't be sorry. For show notes and a list of sources I used for the show, or to make a comment, please visit my website, 3strikesyearout.com. That's 3strikesyearout.com. Also, if you get a chance, please review the podcast in the iTunes Store app on your phone, tablet, or computer. Just look up the podcast name, click on Ratings and Reviews, then click on Write a Review. Thanks. Thanks.